You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Raw Wine, New York 2022, and welcome to our Speaker's Corner. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation podcast on the Heritage Radio Network. Our guest today is Vladimir Magula from Magula Family Winery Estate um, in Slovakia. He'll tell you specifically where it is. It's not a huge country. Um, Vladimir is going to talk about the winery. We're going to talk about the Slovakian natural wine scene. Um, We also have four of Vladimir's wines here, and we will taste them throughout the talk uh, Vladimir will get into them. Um, we'll take questions at any point, if it makes sense, certainly during the uh, tastings. Um, and let's get started. So, Vladimir, I think to give everyone some context, I think it would be great if you spent time uh, talking about all these things wrapped in one, which is the winery, the family, the history. I mean, it's rich, but it's young. You know, it's technically three generations. So let's, you know, hear about that, and then we'll start, you know, tasting wines. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Hello, everyone. I'm Vlad. Um, It's a privilege to be here, and thank you very much for coming, for taking the time. Uh, I hope you will find this uh, interesting and hopefully also pleasurable in terms of tasting. Um, maybe before we dig in, even though as I start to speak, feel free to, to start tasting the, the first wine, I will try to uh, take you through some of the context and stories and the facts in between the wines. It's also why I chose the, the specific selection today. But uh, to give you just Basic intro, first of all, some basic intro for me. Any of you have tasted any wine from Slovakia before? How many people maybe? Quite a lot, amazing. Any of you have ever tasted Magula wine before? <laughs> Not so many, but some, great. Hopefully um, it will be an addition to your uh, uh, portfolio of flavors uh, after today. So, um, when we are talking about wine from our region, it is very, very much connected to the, to the history and, and political context of uh, Central Eastern Europe. Um, many people do not realize that we've been growing wine since the Roman, at least, and probably since the Celtic times before, uh, actually, start of our, uh, well, before 0 AD. Um, so it has a long history. Uh, Slovakia used to be a part of uh, Austrian, Austrian Empire, the Habsburg Empire. So um, our, our winemaking culture is very, very connected to that. And also the grape varieties uh, that we are growing are generally found 
in the countries of the former Habsburg Empire, is, uh, whether it is Austria, Czech Republic, Slovakia, um, Hungary, or some of the border regions of Slovenia, Northern Italy, and uh, Croatia. Um, and I may introduce you to the first wine as an example of that, because that is a blend of three white grapes. Uh, half of it is uh, Grunewald Lina, which is the most planted white grape in Slovakia. 30% uh, is uh, Welsh Riesling and 20% Gewurz Tramina. Um, we call this wine Oranjový Vlk, which translates as the orange wolf. If you look at the bottle, there is a painting of a wolf uh, on it, done by my sister-in-law. And um, we have a lot of wolf motifs in uh, our wine, and it is because of the name of our terroir. Our farm, where we not only grow grapes, but also have a chestnut orchard. My wife, she, she has some horses, and we have a lot of farm animals too. It's located in Western Slovakia on a hill that is uh, between two valleys. One of the valleys is called Valley of the Roses, and on the other side, we have a place that is called Valley of the Wolves. And uh, our farm is in between those two powerful concepts. And actually, there used to be a monastery on the site where our winery is at the moment. So it's really like a very special and powerful place. And uh, we, we love to kind of draw upon the concepts of, of, of those places a lot in, in the wines, especially with the wolves, because... Uh, we, we love the wolves for, as a spirit animal, you know, of independence and power and a bit of wildness too. Um, this wine I chose also because it's the only whitish thing that I have um, available. And um, although Slovakia is mainly uh, planted with white grape varieties, our microterroir is uh, specifically known for its red wines. Um, it is because uh, it is um, a place where we have uh, very little rainfall. The, the literal translation of name of our village translates as dry in English. So uh, we are part of the uh, biggest winemaking area in Slovakia, which is called Malokarpatska, small, small Carpathian winemaking area. And that is on the slopes of small Carpathian mountains. They go from... Uh, Bratislava. Bratislava is on the border of uh, Austria, Hungary, and Czech, Czech Republic. Parts of Bratislava are bordering each of those three countries. So it's really like a capital that is in the very corner of our country on the river Danube. And from there, the small Carpathian mountains start to go uh, north, northeast. Um, our village com contrasted uh, Slovakia, maybe to, to come back to the, to the context of entire the country. We have several winemaking areas, each is very different. There is Malkarpatska in the west, Južnoslovenska, which means South Slovakian in, um, in the south, that is typical for uh, deep, strong wines. Then there is, uh, the most famous one is in very east of Slovakia, which is Tokaj, it's Slovakian part of Tokaj. There is 600 hectares of Tokaj Appellation, like the historic, it used to be one country in the past. So when the appellation of Tokaj was created, uh, it was one country. Now 600 hectares is in Slovakia. Um, then there are, and then there is uh, Nitrianska, uh, Vinohradnicka Oblast, that's around the city of Nitra, a little north from uh, the, the southern Slovakia. And, and uh, the last one, is central Slovakia and that just borders Nitrianska. All the wine is grown in southern half of the country. The northern part is uh, mountainous and generally not very suitable for growing wine, although it's changing a little bit with, uh, with the change of climate, of course. To give you the idea where our country is located in terms of latitude, it is more or less halfway between Alsace, uh, between Bourgogne and Alsace. So a little northern from Burgundy and a little bit south from uh, Alsace. And um, it is a continental climate, so we have really hot and dry summers and quite cold winters, although they are not as cold as they used to be. And um, 
Each of the winemaking areas is specific in terms of soil, even though total area of all Slovakian vineyards is just little less than 10,000 hectares, which is less than the entire Alsace, so it's not a big winemaking country. But there is a lot of diversity. We also have a very large amount of grape varieties, and it's a bit challenging to, um, to, to, to understand all of that, but we love them all, and it's difficult for us just to focus on a few because all of them uh, have their specific place in our culture and in our hearts. Also in my uh, farm, we have more than 10 grapes that we grow, but I'm trying to com combine some in wines like Orangevi Vlog so that it's not so confusing and uh, also the blends work beautifully. Um, when you taste this wine, uh, um, I have one story that, uh, that is very representative of a lot of things uh, that uh, that we do and uh, how we approach winemaking. Um, I had uh, the pleasure to attend uh, the, the speaker's corner before with Harold from Chateau Le Puy, and I realized the, it, was, it was amazing, those of you who, who were here, you know, uh, and I realized the vast difference between a family like, like this, this, this unique winery represents having 400 years of continuous history and vast amount of experience to draw upon. Um, in Slovakia, even though I said we've been making wine for uh, more than 2,000 years now, um, the continuity has not been kept. It's not only because the 40 years of communism that we experienced in the second half of 20th century, um, but also because it's a region that has been ransacked by, by the raids of, of Turks and Tartars and all those nations who were invading the region and killing off the people who were living there. So it, it's been a tough spot uh, for existence. And also it's one of the reasons why, for instance, in Malokarpatska, all of the uh, traditional winemaking families, they were German settlers. They were not of, uh, of, of local ethnicity. If you look at the old names of the vineyards in Malokarpatska, all the names of the vineyards are in uh, German, not, uh, not in, in Slovak language. Old name of my village was Durmbach, which means a dry creek. So uh, it's, uh, it's also all very much connected to the history and, and, and uh, cultural evolution of the region. But um, the largest... Uh, determinant of our current situation is the fact that we had the 40 years of communism. We are very proud to say that my, uh, I am the fourth generation of, of a winemaker in, a, in our family estate, but that is like a huge overstretch of what it really means because the winery was started in 1930s by my great-grandfather who unfortunately died quite young and had three daughters but what was amazing, two of those daughters were taking over the winery in, uh, in the end of the uh, 1940s. It was my grandmother who later went on to study law, and her sister, she studied agriculture. And they were about to, um, to run the, the, the winery further on. But then um, the communists took over power in our country, which unfortunately, among many other things, meant that... Um, land was taken away from the people and um, private, enterprise, private enterprise was prohibited. So for, for 40 years, there was no Magula winery and uh, none of private business at all. And um, also the continuity of families, the, the learning from the generations, this disappeared. And we are now 30 years after we got rid, rid of the commies. Yeah, in 1989, we had the Velvet Revolution, which was part of the political changes in entire Central Eastern Europe. And still, we are kind of realizing very painfully that it, it's now almost as long as we have been under the rule of the communists, and still the natural structure of the society has not been restored. You can see it in many aspects of life. I don't want to go to too much detail, but it's a long time since, and still we're, we're struggling in many respects. And 
it's a very, uh, for me, it's a very interesting position to be as a part of family business because uh, it is a micro world where you kind of try to restore the natural balance there might have existed before. So the two generations were my grand, great-grandfather and my grandma for maybe two or three years. Then nothing was happening for a long, long time. And then after the fall of communism, the land was returned to the original families, either the owners or their uh, descendants. And uh, in such way, the plot where my grandfather had the vineyard was returned to my family, to my grandma. And she proceeded to pass it on my father in 2005. And then after, after that, we have decided with my parents and my wife that we will replant the plot with the vineyard and uh, we will start to make wine again. So even though it's a fourth generation, our knowledge to draw upon is more or less, I would say, 13 years of, uh, of experience. So we are a baby winery at the moment, which has some advantages and some disadvantages. Uh, one of the biggest advantages is that um, we do not have any preconceptions and any myths ingrained in our brains uh, and in our family culture, which happens quite often in the, in the traditional families. So we do not have the knowledge and experience, but at the same time, we have a clean slate that allowed us to experiment quite uh, extravagantly sometimes. And at the same time, it allowed us to embrace the concept of natural wine that we were fortunate enough to discover very early on our winemaking journey. And uh, it, made us, uh, it made perfect sense to us. And fortunately, we did not have the idea that it is going, it, like many of the very good traditional winemakers believe, it's a not possible way of doing things because that's what they have been taught the entire life. So that was a big advantage that we could just dive in after, after, after visiting uh, a now iconic Slovakian winemaker, which is Treko 1075. So those who knew Slovak wine probably came across that. That was the first time I tasted a wine that was made we did not know the term natural wine that at that time yet, but it was, uh, uh, they called it uh, wine fail faithful to the nature. That was, that was the, <laughs> That's a new the one. term they, they were coining. And it was beautiful. And more or less for me, I never looked back after, after tasting that wine. So you, you started planting in 07, right? Is that about when? Pardon, you started planting the vines in 2007? Yes, yes, in 2007. Um, I would go to story of that maybe with the next samples. Um, maybe one thing to, to tell about this wine. Uh, it's the only wine that we are <coughs> making without any addition of sulfites. So all the wines are made quite strictly naturally. We farm biodynamically in our vineyards. We've been organic from almost the very beginning, from the year 2012. But um, uh, for me, um, the, the greatest challenge is to, to make wine that is really pure grape juice that just ferments and is transformed into the bottle in a pure form that uh, is uh, accessible to, to drink and brings joy to, 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 the, to the person that drinks it. I very strongly believe that that's like the most challenging part of the winemaking mission is to capture uh, the, the, the essence of life in the vineyard, not to destroy it, not to destroy it first, for, first of all in the vineyard. So the, the, the vineyard must be full of life and, 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 and strong by itself. And then the challenge for the winemaker is not to destroy that, that strength of life that is brought to the cellar. And um, of course, the more one tries to control the process and to intervene or to use substances that uh, uh, intervene with the natural aging and, and transformation of the grape juice to, to the wine, I think the more risky it is and the more probable it is that the, the essence of, the, of life, the, the thing that actually makes wine much more than just an alcoholic beverage with some flavor profile that is taken away. Therefore, even though I'm using sulfur 
as the only additive in all of my wines except for this one, I'm looking into the zero-edit sulfide style of winemaking as, as a vision that makes sense to me philosophically and also practically because I think when the wine is properly made, it should be able to be strong and stable and pure without faults, even without the use of sulfide. So uh, it's a big topic for me and for our family internally. We're just scared we don't have the balls to do it with some of the other wines, even though the bottles that we bottle for ourselves, they are beautiful. But I... <laughs> so people can imagine, visualize, talk about the vineyards, vineyard practices. Let's talk about you know, the soils you're dealing with, you know, get into the climate again a little, um, and, you know, what you're doing out there, obviously, you know, hand-picking and all of that. So, you know, take us through before the wine comes into um, yeah. the cellar. Maybe to talk about the vineyards, we can also look at the second sample, um, because um, that is very connected to um, our evolution of uh, wine growing and planting the vineyards. We have some old vineyards too, because as we as we got back the plot for, for where which we planted uh, the vineyard of the last two samples, then we started to purchase also some land uh, with old vineyards, and that is together creating the farm that we have now of about eight hectares. Um, like I said, we are a cool climate region. The soil in our village is loose. And... Uh, L-O-V-S-S? Yeah, that's it. What is that? Uh, it's, um, it's a very fine-grained type of soil that uh, originates by blowing um, of the dust particles. Generally, you have rivers that are flooding in, 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 in the spring. And in some, I don't know exactly which period of uh, Earth evolution it, it was happening, but the wind was then blowing those, the, 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 that soil or the, the, the grains of the, of, the, of the flooded soil when it dried out and it created the, it created the dunes that are called loose. Um, there are also some remains of the ancient sea in the, in the under, underground of, uh, of our soil. So the amount of calc is extremely high, which gives a beautiful acidity to all of the grapes that, that we have. Whether it are, it's uh, white grapes and also when it's really late harvest grapes, we always have very high degree of acidity, a lot of, uh, a lot of acids in the grapes, which is great for aging and generally stability of the wines too. Um, we discussed uh, training of the of the vines extensively. The traditional training system in uh, our region is uh, called, uh, uh, I think, uh, internationally it's called Guyot. Um, it's uh, we call it Rheinhessen uh, or middle training system. So it's about. 60 centimeters tall and then you have the from there you you prune the the vine to to have the yearly shoots um the very traditional system is to to prune the vines on the head so so you every year you just cut the the you, you prune it to to the bottom of of um, uh, right right above the earth and uh, in some places uh, the training is cordon you know, high training when uh, when the trunk is going about 160 centimeters tall, and then the pruning is taking place at that height, and the yearly shoots they are not going upwards, but they fall down. They create the they create this in the end. Um, they create this tunnel. Canopy. Canopy. Uh, it, I think canopy is a roof. Yeah. It's it's not really a roof. It's like uh, you you can pass between. It's important, but. It falls, the shoots fall all the way down to the earth. Wow. There's a massive area of leaves, which is good for photosynthesis, for creation of the sugar in the grapes. And um, also, uh, when we are considering different variation, uh, di different alternatives, one of the arguments for this type of training was um, that it is, vine is, what's the word in English? Uh, it's a vine, you know, it, uh, it's, it's, 
basically the, the original vine, it was a parasite that was climbing on the trees, that it was using the trunks of the trees to climb up and get the sunshine from above the trees. So it's a natural shape for the vine to, to grow these long, long shoots and not to be bound in, uh, in any part, in any, any type of uh, wiring or whatever. So uh, we chose to plant some, uh, the, most of our new vineyards is planting, planted as a cordon, including the Pinot. And um, so I, that, that's an interesting thing because most of the Pinot that we, we are aware of is usually on the, on the, on, on the Guyot type of, of training. Right. And it's always uh, a big discussion when we're talking to old and experienced wine growers, for instance, Everybody was saying that um, the cordon is not good because it's far away from the roots and that uh, the, the plants will be, the, the grapes will be mellow and have a lot of acidity, not enough sugar. But um, that's not, a, not our experience. So it's one of, but, but it depends always on the microclimate. Anyway. Um, this, is this is 100% Pinot Noir. This is 100% Pinot Noir. I'm what sure I, you've all had Slovakian Pinot Noirs up until today, right? And Pinot Noir is one of the grapes um, that may not sound so traditionally, although it has been uh, grown in Slovakia and our region for hundreds of years. Obviously, it's at home in Burgundy. But uh, at the same time, for me, it is fascinating as a grape variety that is very versatile and can grow in all different places of the world. You in the US know that. So um, we are really focusing on local grape varieties in our winery, but uh, Pinot is, for me, great challenge because it's grown really all over the entire world and it is like the ultimate grape. I love wines from Pinot Noir and I always felt I wanted to make our take on the grape, uh, the Slovakian interpretation of, of the variety, because uh, it's one of the noblest grapes I know. And um, there is a special vineyard, special plot, that I was trying to buy out for a couple of years from many owners, and ever since I focused my attention on it, it's a beautiful southwestern slope where more than 30 years, nothing was farmed. It was just you know, grown with some wild plants and horses were, gra were grazing there. So it was a really beautifully rested soil. And from the very, very beginning, it felt like it's a place that requires Pinot. It's <laughs> kind of hard to explain. It was untreated with anything? No, I mean, there no, no. For the couple of decades, it was not treated with anything. And um, we planted this vineyard that you taste wine from now in 2017. This, this wine is its first harvest. And it's a very special vineyard for us, um, mainly because of the procedure, the thought procedure and, uh, that, that we went through before planting it and because of the plants that are in that vineyard. You know, when we planted our first vineyard, that was exactly 10, 10 years before that, in 2007, we planted Frankovka. The thought process there was to choose a correct grape. We were thinking in terms of grape varieties, and uh, when we decided it will be Frankovka, it was my dad who did all the thinking. I was not really involved in anything at that time, and my dad did an incredible choice to, to, to pick up exactly this grape. We'll talk about Frank of Kaleta. He just went to a supplier of, of little plants for, for plantation and he bought Frankovka. Yeah, it was supposed to be a good one. So we ordered, I don't know, 3,870 uh, 3, plants that are in the plot and we planted it. And we cared for the vineyard best we could. We'll taste it later. However... But can, when, we, can we tell everyone now that Frankovka is... Also, Blau Frankish. Blau yeah. Frankish. We'll talk about so that too. You know, it's the uh, Slovakian version. Name of, of uh, Blau, Blau Frankish. Frankish. Yeah. Uh, going back to the Pinot, um, we knew the grape will be Pinot. However, we wanted to plant it properly. So uh, started. We started to read the books. I read, read there are some clones of Pinot, which is the first time I was actually introduced to the concept of the clones. We have read that there are some beautiful Pinot clones from Dijon, 
that have been uh, selected in 1960s and that these have very good properties and it's good to combine several of them to make a good vineyard. And um, then we started to visit some winemakers working with Pinot in Slovakia, in Czech Republic, and later on in Burgundy. Um, in Slovakia and Czech Republic, it turned out that almost all of the Pinot that was planted currently is two clones, 777 and 115. So we thought, that like, okay, that's the way to go, apparently. And then I came to Burgundy, and uh, because of the beauty of the natural wine community of winemakers, we were able to meet some of very good uh, Bur 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 Burgundy winemakers, including uh, Thibault Ligebert in uh, Nuit Saint-Georges and Julien Juliot in uh, Macomville. And meeting these guys, very shortly after acquiring the knowledge of the existence of clones, we discovered that this is actually shunned by the traditional natural winemakers uh, over there because they were realizing after the experience they already had with the clones, which was later to explained to us by the pepiniers, the guy who was working with the plantation material, is that problem of the clones is that it's genetically identical individuals that you plant and they have been selected in those 1960s when uh, the agriculture was completely crazy in terms of controlling everything and the kind of industrially approaching the agriculture by the engineers in, in France, in Bonn, they, or Dijon, sorry, they, they selected the best versions of the grape to have good yields, good sugar, good flavor profile, good everything. So if you look at the 777 or 115, it's amazing grape, but it's a problem if you plant the entire vineyard with this because uh, it becomes plain. That's what they experienced. You know, all the old vineyards, they are very diverse. They have individuality. There is hundreds of distinctive plants as, uh, that, that originated through the hundreds of, years of, uh, hundreds of years of evolution. And each of that plant individually is probably nowhere near as good as the clone in terms of all the important key performance indicator, you know? But each has its unique contribution to the entire mix and is different in every year. So some can perform better in a, in, in a hot year, or some can be good in the, in the wet year. And together they create a unique expression of given vineyard and uh, given vintage. So. Uh, what we came to understand is that uh, when you truly want to have a wine that is uh, rich in its expression, that is full of flavor and concentrated, you should be looking for the diversity of the plants, which is what the clones bring to the, uh, which is what the old muscle selections bring to the table. And um, we, I, I don't want to go through the entire story, but we ended up with a very interesting muscle selection that is essentially a genetic replica of 100 years old vineyard based in Pomart, Claude de Penel, um, farmed by uh, Comte Armand. And we, uh, we are working with a pepinerist who is keeping the heritage of that vineyard uh, alive for them, for, re for replanting new plants. And it's vastly ma massive um, muscle selection. Uh, there is more than 400 unique plants in the selection, and that's what we planted in our Valley of the Wolf, uh, in our village. So um, I was really, really excited um, to wait for the first harvest, because um, there was a very bold hypothesis uh, with the expectation of that, uh, of that vineyard, which we have been talking about with the pepinerist. And the idea is, that when you, we all revere the wines from the old vines, you know, like wines from the very old vineyards. And I have always thought, and all the people I have spoken about uh, it also, that the, the beauty of the wines from the old vines is from the deep roots, from the age of the plant that has been settled in the place for decades and it's stable and it has reasonable yields and it con creates these concentrated grapes full of flavor, which of course is a part of the story. 
But it turns out that most likely the second part of the story is that if you, if you realize old vines uh, by law, it's 70 plus years. If we have 2020 more or less now, so it gets us to about 1950 as the youngest old vines available. It's the time before the cloves were started to be massively planted in the vineyards. It's from the times when just the, the vineyard was nourished as an individuality and it has been replaced by those many uh, different plants that were growing in the vineyard. So the, the hypothesis is that when you are planting very diverse muscle selection, you are actually getting part of the richness of the old vines also in the young vineyard, not because the, 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 the vines are really young, so the taste is not big, but for instance, if you taste this Pinot, it's so rich in the flavor already, it's a, you know, it's a baby vineyard, it's the first harvest, but the, rich, the, the flavor is super, super rich, and so we are so excited about where the vineyard will take us in, in the future years. So, we tried the first two wines, any questions? because we're going to move to the second two wines, which will be our four wines. Any questions about the first wines? Any questions in general? Yes. Um, also, there is one funny uh, story I wanted to mention, very short. Uh, I told you we are on a hill between Valley of the Rose and Valley of the Wolves. But if you uh, notice the bottle of Pinot, which is in the Valley of the Wolves, the name on the bottle is Teufelstal Pinot, which is the old German name of the, of the valley. And it does not mean Valley of the Wolves, in fact, the way how it is called in Slovak now. It means the Valley of the Devil. So uh, it's, uh, it's just uh, crazy, you know. The, I've been always fascinating, uh, fascinated by, by the power of the names of, of those places and by the contrast that... If, you, if I look all the vineyards in our farm, if I stand on the roof of my winery, which we did in such a way that we can go up there because it's a beautiful view of a wide surrounding, but all the vineyards are within 400 meter diameter from that place. So it's all very close to each other. And it always really gets to me that when I look one way, it's the Valley of the Rose, and you, you can feel the place is gentle in a way. And on the other side, you have the Valley of the Devil, and it's such a great contrast, and it feels, it feel, it, it's hard to explain, but it feels very, very powerful to be in, the betw in between of those two. So uh, I just wanted to share that. All right, so do we have the third wine in front of everyone, or almost? We can talk about yeah. that. But before, uh, before you talk about that, you mentioned someone earlier. I mean, I guess it's fair to say you've been instrumental in the Slovakian natural wine movement. You talked about some of your influences. You talked about Strekov, you know, early on. I mean, anyone else, any other influences, mentors, you know, that have shaped? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was, um, it's a broader topic, actually. My, um, my first contact with natural wine was with Streco, and then we met a some, some, some couple of other winemakers, but um, I'm very happy to be here at Raw doing this, this talk because my most eye-opening experience, and actually the experience that also gave me the contacts to get to Burgundy, was a Raw Fair, um, the only Raw Fair that took place in Vienna in 2004. I'm not sure if it was 13 or 14. And um, we have discovered the first wines made without addition of sulfides there. And that was like beautiful, beautiful thing. And I have asked every winemaker whose wines I liked, I was asking, uh, that's also where we came to know the biodynamic wines, which was not known to us at that time or very vaguely. I was asking them where they learned to do what they do. And uh, it was, you know, it was uh, really uh, iconic winemakers. Like I remember now, it was uh, Eduard Chepe from um, Gut Ogau. And he said, well, from the other winemakers, you know. 
that it's, it was, especially Austria is really inspiring in this, and we've been trying to, to do that in Slovakia too, that the people talk together, they share, they learn from each other, and that's how the knowledge is uh, shared and created. And um, in Slovakia, we are, I'm, I don't know exactly, but we are somewhere 15 to 20 winemakers making natural wines. Um, I tried to um, calculate once the production. So it's, I think, slightly less than 1% of the entire wine market of our country. So it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a tiny thing. And more than, I think 80% of that wine is being exported. So <laughs> even though Slovakia drinks a lot more wine than it produces. That's uh, interesting. And uh, we have... Uh, we have um, these are two we, important wines, these two right here, right? Absolutely. But just to finish uh, your question, because I want to mention uh, our group called Autentistan that uh, was established in the uh, south of Slovakia in the village of Streko, which was more or less place where the most uh, of the natural movement uh, started at the beginning, especially connected with uh, Streko 1075 and... Uh, also, a gentleman called Stefan Kashnik, but he's like he's less than one hectare of production, making very. F but he was the one on the rofer in Vienna. He was the only from Slovakia rofer at that time, and um, so it was established in uh, in Streko, and now we are five members. Uh, so it's uh, Streko 1075, Kashnik and Matias wineries from southern Slovakia, uh, Slobodne, and us from uh, Malokarpatska. And uh, maybe to touch a little bit on that before, before we proceed to the wines, um, I realized Slobodne and us, uh, we are the kind of uh, younger generation or a different generation because the wineries in Streko, those are people who grew up in, in the vineyards or in the environment that was making wines. It was a part of their upbringing, part of their culture. But... Uh, for my, myself or people from Slobodna, it's a completely different story. We have grown up in Bratislava. We're the same generation, slightly above 40. Um, they studied, uh, I studied business administration and finance. Uh, in Slobodna, they studied economics and law. So we just grew up in... in Everything in, but wine. <laughs> Everything but wine, exactly. <laughs> and not... In my wildest dreams, did I intend to become a farmer or become a winemaker? <laughs> even, even at that 2005 meeting that we discussed planting the vineyard with my parents, I did not really realize what's going on and what's start. I just liked the idea of having a winery and vineyard, but I never imagined myself what, what that yeah what, what it means. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a crazy story since then. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that, that we, we, there are people in Slovakia who are from the natural, continuous wine-growing environment, and there, there is a generation like myself who came to it from completely different environments, and we just got... So that, of, just to spell it out, because I do that a lot, that, that thank you. group, it's called Autentista, A-U-T-E-N-T-I-S-T-A, and that's Vladimir and the four other or five other guys that are trying to get natural wines, you know, more accepted in Slovakia and beyond. Yeah, um, and to share the knowledge among ourselves right, too. Right, you, you guys are very generous towards each other with that. All right, let's talk about the uh, fourth wine, the Frankovka, which is Blau Frankish. Blau Frankish, yeah. I'm encouraging everybody who is not from a German-speaking country to consider using the term Frankovka because I just like the name so much in Slovak. But uh, the grape we are speaking about is the most important grape from Central Eastern Europe, speaking about blue grapes, of course. Um, it is instrumental to understanding our wines, whether it is Austria, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech Republic. Frankovka has the wonderful ability to reflect soil, to reflect micro-terroir, so it can be extremely diverse among, other wine, uh, among different places. At the same time, what I find uh, 
especially in our vineyard, is that even in very difficult vintages, it is able to produce beautiful grapes that create wonderful wines, although, of course, they reflect the year, but the wines, with, when given enough time, they sometimes carry more attraction than, you know, like the conventionally good years. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the vineyard itself, because... Of uh, this particular of wine? This, of this particular wine. So this wine. is a 2017 vintage, right? Yes. This has a little bottle age. It has. It needs to have. Uh, that's what I find uh, with Frankovka. Um, I like, it, it's possible to make a very good rosé of Frankovka. It's possible to make a very fruity and energetic younger red. But the way I like to work with the, the grape is to make actually well-matured red wines that have been enough, given enough time to age in the, in the cellar as well as in the bottle. Um, that's why we have the 2017 vintage, which until very recently was our current vintage. I'm introducing the 2018 this week, more or less. We don't even have the labels for 2018. Um, When I go back to the vineyard, I told you it was my dad who did all the thought process uh, for choosing the right grape, and there were some crazy ideas I can tell you about uh, planting all different sorts of grapes and combination of different grape varieties together. But somehow he ended up choosing uh, this most... It, you know, looking back it, back, it looks like a no-brainer, but it was not. <laughs> it was a difficult uh, thinking. Um, the vineyard has a very special place in um, the lives and hearts of my family because that is the vineyard that actually connects us with our ancestors. That is the vineyard that was planted by my great-grandfather, who, by the way, did not grow up in winemaking environment. He was from northern Slovakia, married to Trnava, was a director of insurance company, health insurance company, and just fell in love with making wine at the peak of his career bought the plot, bought the house, and planted a vineyard that was very modern at that time. So in many respects, we are kind of looking back to him that his life was similar to what our family is experiencing now. And it was on this plot that was taken away from our family and then after 40-something years was returned wow. that we started, that we decided to become farmers again, that we started to establish the winery. And uh, for me personally, it's even more important. We call this vineyard uh, by the name of my first son, Hugo, because uh, at the What's time... What's that? Spell it? H-U-G-O. Uh, Hugo. Yeah, Hugo. Hugo. Okay. Uh, which, by the way, means full of spirit as a meaning of a name. I love, I love that name. I, I didn't want to be called Hugo until I found out the meaning of the name. It was my wife's crazy idea. <laughs> Uh, but um, we planted the vineyard when we were expecting and he was born exactly at the time when the young uh, shoots were going out from the earth so it's a very very personal vineyard to us and somehow I think it's also because of that that um, the wines are very special when we, when we make them it was the first time making wine from this vineyard that I felt as a winemaker twice, actually. Once in 2011, when we had the first proper harvest from the vineyard and I tasted the, the wine, which was still on skins with my dad. It's a, it's one of, it's a very rare moment I realize, I remember as, uh, as a personal experience that I was in the cellar with my dad and we just tasted the, the wine. It's actually... Yeah, it's <laughs> It's touching to, to remember, it's funny. Um, and uh, we just tasted it and looked at, at each other and we knew it's amazing. It's, uh, I'm surprised by the emotion that is uh, wow. overwhelming. It, it's a great memory. Sorry about that. It's a very special wine. <laughs> and uh, second time, um, this vineyard and the, the grapes from this vineyard became so uh, so uh, important for me personally was in the vintage 2012 because um, 
like I said, I, I studied business, administra business administration and finance, so I knew nothing at all about uh, agriculture, making wine. The only, my, my dad, he did wine when he was like 20 years old, once or twice with his aunt. That was the extent of his experience. And uh, the most experienced person in the family was my mother, who studied chemistry and uh, was uh, into environmental protection all of her life. But her first professional experience in early 1980s was that she worked in a brewery. So she knew something about fermentation. And she's also a very diligent uh, student of things. So whereas I am not so keen to read books, uh, especially the, the, you know, the factual books, books. My mom, she, uh, she used to work in Geneva at that time in, in the UN, so she, she, she was alone and she read all the books there were about making wine. And um, she was the one designing the processes in the cellar for the first few years. And basically I was just the muscle, the, the, especially <laughs> the, the first two vintages. And then in um, 2012, that was a very profound year for, uh, for, uh, for me as a, as a person, as a winemaker. Uh, it was the time when the winemakers of Streko 2075 separated. And uh, my mentor, Tibor, who unfortunately passed away last, last year, he was the winemaker who started his own winery at that time. And when I found out that his, his uh, schedule is a little more free than it used to be, I uh, asked him to consult and, and to work with me on the 2012 vintage. So he was coming every week, uh, yeah, every week, and we've been working to the, together in the summer. So that well, was when he came. Were there drastic changes, or were they subtle? No, no not really. I mean, you were on the right track. He. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, he was he was my uh, primary inspiration for uh, winemaking from the beginning, and. Even the processes that my mom designed, they were um, not from the, from the place of uh, natural wine philosophy, but they were from the place of fine wine, French fine wine, like the top appellation winemaking style philosophy. So the differences were actually not so huge. Right. And the extent of uh, intervention was very small already. But uh, with the 2012, it was when I did my first wine according to myself, which was Frankovka Unplugged, by the way, the, the style of wine we have in a second. Now, please, let's focus on the wines. Um, you have uh, two glasses ahead of you. They are from the vineyard I was talking so much about. Uh, um, and the grapes are important. However, these two wines they are very good example to show that even if you are making wine in a natural way and you have, you have the same raw material because these two wines are from literally same raw material coming to the cellar, you can produce vastly different wines with slight variation in the winemaking process. So uh, the first one, I don't know which is left and which is right. You need to figure that out for yourself. But uh, I think the first is left. You'll figure that out very soon when tasting the wines. The one is classic Frankovka, which means when the grapes come to the cellar, they are crushed. The wine then goes down to crushed and distemmed. The wine goes to the open vats, stays on skins for six weeks. We are manually punching it down, and then. The wine, it's a free run actually, it's not pressed, yeah, any, any of, either of them is not pressed. Uh, then it's uh, gravitationally racked to the barrels, stay there for two years with fine lees, and then it's bottled, treated with 10 milligrams of sulfur just before bottling. So very simple and conservative process. The second wine is from exactly same grapes. So I'm just choosing part of each, which is going through the crusher, and part of it, I am crushing by feet, and it ferments with stems. The thing is, I'm calling this wine unplugged because there is no machine involved in any part of the winemaking process. So it's the gentlest possible way of transforming the grape into the wine. It spends equal amount of time on skins. It spends equal amount of time in the barrels. 
and then is gravitationally bottled. It is treated with the same amount of sulfur too. So the process is very, very similar. But if you taste the wine, the sophistication, the, the, the depth, the breadth, the, 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 the deepness of the wine, the depth of the wine is completely elsewhere and it's easy to recognize. One is softer, gentler, you know, the unplugged is a little, a little more difficult to, to interpret at the first. It has, it's, you know, it has certain distance, but then when you start to talk to it, it opens up a little. And uh, it's my most favorite wine. It's, it's a wine that I uh, love to drink when I have the opportunity. I don't have so much of it, so it's, it's not an everyday wine even for us. But uh, that's uh, also a big lecture of how very subtle variation in the process uh, can impact the wine. And it also tells you that uh, many things, you know, because when we are talking about natural wine, Sometimes it feels very uh, esoteric and very, you know you, you know, you never know what's the story and what's the substance. But there is actually a lot of substance. Even I'm, I'm doing many things in the cellar because I believe they are right. I have no factual knowledge of what's going on. But observing tiny differences like this is a fantastic confirmation that those beliefs that I intuitively feel, I feel it in my heart and I feel it in my head, they make sense to me and the wine confirms that those beliefs are correct. And that's very important uh, for me and that's what I like to explore. I mean, we could talk about intuitive responses to crisis and uh, what beautiful things can come out of that, especially... I. Can I, we don't have time for a story? We're Come running out of time, but we do have, I'm not going to deny you this story, <laughs> but we got to wrap up soon. Yeah. I will tell you all the stories in my stand. If you like to come, it's number 15, because I have three wines that are called Vlk, Wolf, and all of them are a product of a crisis. The um, Orange of Vlk, um, I was, I, I came familiar with orange wines uh, at, I don't know, some 10 years ago, and I really liked them. We didn't do anything like that. At some point, I felt I wanted to explore that uh, style of winemaking, which was in 2015. And I have observed from other winemakers that a very good grape for making skin fermented white is Valsch Riesling, Riesling Italico, famous local grape. So I decided we have a beautiful old vineyard with uh, Riesling Italico. So I, part of the grapes, I said we are going to use it for uh, one barrel of orange. Uh, I, I calculated the amount, I put it into the vat, it fermented beautifully, everything was perfect until I wrecked the wine to the barrel and discovered that the barrel is filled to 70% and I don't have any orange to, to fill it to the top. And that didn't feel so good. <laughs> and uh, for a moment, I didn't know what to do. However, you need to, you need to find a solution because that's, that's your job. So um, I was thinking, and you know, if you look at our portfolio, we don't have many white grapes. It's a, it's a, it's a scarce, uh, scarce grape for us, white grape. So I had a little amount of uh, a grape called Jevin, which is which is a special solar grape, and a little amount of Grüneveltliner uh, um, as, as white grapes without any skin contact, young wines already. And um, I was thinking, okay, I need to top up the barrel, and I ended up filling half of the empty space by uh, Grüneveltliner and the other half of the space by Jevin uh, because I didn't want to quote-unquote, waste too much of each of them because I didn't have enough of the white wines. And what was really not motivated by creation of the blend, but by solving a problematic situations of, situation in the cellar, ended up as being a brilliant blending decision, not decision, <laughs> a blending result. <laughs> it was not a decision. No, it was brilliant <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. yeah. And ever since then, I was always combining uh, these three grapes. I have replaced uh, Jevin for the first time with Gewurztraminer in the 2020 
because Jevin is also aromatic and I always want to have 20 to 25% of aromatic grape in the blend. I find it really charming. And um, otherwise the, the Grunewald Lina and uh, Welsh Riesling are the core of the wine. So that was, uh, that was the story of Orangeovi Volk and uh, it was supposed to be Riesling Vlaski Orange, you know? It was not supposed Interesting. to be a blend. All right, we have to wrap up soon. Um, the last couple of wines we tried, does anyone have any questions? Any uh, observations, questions? All right. Um, we've taken advantage of our time. I want to thank uh, our guest, Vladimir Magula. Thank you. Keep an eye out for Vladimir's wines, Magula Family Winery Estate. Um, like Vladimir said, he these... You know, some of these wines go back to 2017. He has current vintages. Um, so thank you to Vladimir. Thank you guys for coming in um, to Raw Wine and spending time at the uh, Speaker's Corner. Um, I'm Sam Ben Ruby from the Grape Nation podcast on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, please listen anytime. This week we have Isabel Legere on, on, who comes on every year. Raw Wine is here in New York. It's a great interview with perspective about raw wine, the winemakers, you know, everything she does. So thank you again for coming out. Um, enjoy the rest of the day. And uh, go visit Vladimir. Thank you, and see you there. Enjoy the fair. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.